0: Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Gay Gaddis, founder and CEO of T3. Founded in 1989, T3 was born after Gay cashed in a $16,000 check from her IRA to start the company. Fast forward to today, and T3 is a top-ranked innovation firm creating digital marketing programs for Fortune 200 clients. T3 was also completely bootstrapped by Gay and is today one of the largest agencies owned by a woman. As an active spokesperson, Gay is a regular contributor to Forbes and part of Fortune's Most Powerful Women Insider Network. She has received numerous awards, including Fast Company's Top 25 Women Business Builders, Inc. Magazine's Top 10 Entrepreneurs of the Year, and many, many more. She recently published her first book titled Cowgirl Power, How to Kick Ass in Business and in Life, where she shares lessons learned as a Texas rancher and how those lessons have translated to the business world. Gay is also an accomplished painter and an artist at heart. Her Texas landscape paintings have been featured in galleries in New York and in Texas. In this episode, Chad and Gay discuss T3's founding story, the sacrifices Gay has had to make along the way to ensure the company's success, and how her cowgirl upbringing has helped her to risk manage in business.
1: Good morning, Gay. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great.
1: It's great to have you on the show. We're excited for this interview. But first, I want to take a moment to uh, let you introduce yourself. So if we were to meet at, say, a gala or a painting exhibition or something like that, how would you describe yourself and your work?
2: Well, first of all, i say I'm Gay Gaddis, and I'm the CEO and founder of a company called T3, which is a digital transformation marketing advertising firm based in Austin, Texas, with offices in New York, San Francisco, and Atlanta. If I was going to talk to you about being a painter, I would say I've gone back to the love of my life, which um, back when I was in college, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art. I trained as a painter, I trained as a fine artist, but that's how I got in the advertising business because I could draw. And if you dial back uh, to the days when I graduated from college, that's what you had to do to show work to clients. You had to draw what we call comps. And so I could do that, I could write copy, and that's how I got in the ad business and the rest is history. But uh, being able to paint again, which I've been doing since 2014 has been a great joy.
1: Would you say that you've always been really imaginative or the drawing and the painting, has that been something you've always done? Or when did you first get into that?
2: Probably when I was a little child. Uh, my mother owned a kindergarten. And so after the kindergarten classes, when I was two or even three years old, really a little girl, my mom would just let me go in there and hand me paint brushes and temper paint and paper, and I had a little easel. And I started messing around with, with paints and things. As a tiny child, I always liked to draw uh, and then throughout my career in elementary school, and then into high school, I won a lot of awards and art shows. I took art lessons, art classes, and uh, decided that that's what I wanted to major in in college. And a lot of my friends would make fun of me because uh, I, I do make good, I did make good grades, and they make fun of me and say, "What are you doing? You know, in the art school, you ought to be, you know, getting a law degree or something else." And I said, "No, you don't understand. I work really hard as an artist, and uh, it, it takes." A lot of creativity and a lot of problem solving every day when you tackle a painting. And the other thing I realized later in life is that when you're an art major, you learn to take criticism because almost every day you are asked to put your work up on the wall or show it to a group and you get critiqued. And sometimes it's not nice, you know, or it didn't feel good because they're really giving you a hard time about something, but they're honestly trying to make you better. And so it's not the kind of critique where someone's being just mean. They're really trying to help you. Along the way in life, I've realized that I can take a critique pretty well. And uh, I continue to take those and seek them out. Not vitriolic ones necessarily, but the type of critique that can improve what I'm doing. And so probably back in those art classes at the University of Texas, I learned how to take it.
1: Do you feel like that's a superpower? Because I I think that for any other executive or CEO that might be listening, they probably hear that. And subconsciously, unconsciously, I think many of us are aware of how hard it is to take feedback. So do you feel like that's a superpower for you, the fact that you've been practicing this for so many years?
2: Probably so. And it is not easy to take them, like I said. And the, the other part of being a CEO is that it gets tougher and tougher for people to really tell you what they think. You know, you become intimidating at some point and why do they want to put their career on the line to tell you something and be honest? But I've really tried to always keep that open dialogue with the people close to me and ask them to tell me what they think because if they're honestly trying to improve the situation, make T3 better, make my speeches better, whatever I'm doing, then uh, I welcome that. And a couple of times, you know, I, I go, ooh, that kind of hurt. <laughs> but it's, it's okay uh, because then I'll take that to heart and, and try to do better. We can always do better.
1: Definitely. So, what are the origins of T3? I'd be curious to know if there were a couple moments or a couple stories that led you to the epiphany that later became your business.
2: If you dial back to the late 1980s, the entire country was in a very deep recession. And Texas, where I happen to be, was particularly hit hard. And uh, we had all of our savings and loans failing. Uh, The real estate wasn't worth the dirt it was built on. And so people were suffering. And I was working for an advertising agency at the time. We started losing business. We had to do a lot of layoffs. It was a really, really tough time. And so in the heat of all this, I decided to write a business plan that I thought would help turn the agency around. And uh, it was all going real well, I, I had it together, I presented it to several people, but I made a big mistake. And that is I did not bring the president of the company along with me. And I unfolded this and there he was kind of shocked that I did this and came in my office the next day and said, I've read your plan and I'm not gonna support you. And so crestfallen, humiliated, mad, upset. I sat there and fumed for about 30 minutes and then I went just walked down the hall. I called my husband first. I said, I'm going to quit. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I've got to get out of here. And so there wasn't a very good time to quit a job because no one was hiring anybody. So I did run down the hall. I quit. And I said, well, if I can't do this here, I'm going to do it someplace else. When I went home that evening, I realized that someplace else was going to have to be my place. Uh, And so I Cashed in a sixteen thousand dollar IRA. That's all the money I had. I'd taken salary cuts. I mean, we were broke basically, my husband and we had three kids. Started off with three small accounts and you know, I could tell you more and more of the rest is history, but it was a really big epiphany for me that day that guess what? I'm gonna do this on my own. And I never let back.
1: I love that. And I would be curious to know, too, were there any specific words or pieces of advice that you received from your husband, your kids, or any mentors that helped give you the confidence to get going? Or was there an internal monologue that you were playing in your head that said, now's the time, I have to do this, what was that like?
2: Well, failure was not an option for me. And you have to understand that my husband and I really were in financial straits. And so I had to make something work. And literally that motivation to take care of my family and be a part of our future success, just kept me going 24 seven. And it just ate at me every minute. And so, like I said, failure just wasn't an option. I had to make something work. But I did have a lot of support. My husband was extremely supportive, and he has been my entire career. Right there as a cheerleader in the background, you know, giving me advice. He, he'd he been in the business, too. I'd worked with him before. He knew, you know, some things that I needed to hear along the way and, and some ways to handle stuff. He was very supportive. My mother was very supportive. She decided to move to Austin, where I started T3, and help me with the kids. I was working so hard, and, and you know, her livelihood depended on it, too in a way because I had, you know, been very helpful to my mom through the years after my father died when I was 13. So we'd gone through financial uh, straits of our own. She came and just kind of saved the day many times, you know, when you on that flight and you can't get home and got to get dinner on the table and make sure they do their homework and all that stuff. And she was at safety net and was just really a saint through the whole thing.
1: Very cool. Yeah. I've had a Similar experience. So my mom came out when we had my wife and I had our first child and we could not have got to where we're at today without her help in the first 15 months of uh, his life. So can't imagine having three kids and uh, starting a business though. Gay, I'd be curious to know your first two employees, how were you able to convince them to come join you? Were they friends? Did you have a history together? What was that like?
2: The first person I hired was a creative director who I'd worked with at the agency I was with. And he and I had worked on a lot of the business together and had a real good relationship. And so he was excited and and jumped ship and and came with me. The other person was the younger sister of a very good college friend of mine, and I'd known. her family and she actually wanted to come back to Texas and uh had been working in the Bush administration in DC for a while and some other political things and so she was just kind of a jack of all trades you know Rena was just one of these people that could do anything just made magic happen and so I talked to her through her sister said you gotta talk to her I did And she decided to take the jump and come to Austin and work with me, which was just amazing. And I'll tell you a really funny story about her. When we first started the business, you know, I had three hospital accounts that I'd actually bought from my previous employer. But I was trying to diversify. You know, you don't want to be just a healthcare agency or all that. So I wanted to be in other businesses. So we had an opportunity to pitch a company called Prime Cable. And back in the days, it's late 1980s, 89, 90, we were selling cable to people people said, hey, we've got CBS, PBS, NBC, ABC. We don't need to buy television. And so here was this these guys in Austin who had put together a venture group and were out buying cable companies all over the country. So we got a chance to pitch this business. And they were pretty close to a decision. They wanted to go with us, which was huge. It was a national piece of business right out of the gate. But they wanted to come to our office, which was a thousand square feet, small little office. So here they come sitting around my table and talking the business. And all of a sudden the starts ringing at the front desk. I thought, wow, you know, it rang, it rang, it rang. And when they left and we pretty much had the deal done, we went to Rena. I said, who in the world was calling us? It sounded like, you know, exciting stuff. Who called? You know, what's going on? She said, oh, that was just me. She said, I went into the back room and made the front desk ring. So, so it looked like stuff was happening here. You know, we got the business by the way, and we ended up winning ESPN's top marketing campaign of the year, uh, and two national addies in the first uh, three years of business. It was pretty amazing.
1: That's incredible. So were those moments where you won those awards, won that account in the ESPN, would you say that those were like a turning point for the business? Was success inevitable at that point or did it relieve some pressure? What was that like?
2: We had been a results driven agency from day one that's was my business plan really was to measure everything we did and so we started measuring (laughs) and we knew how many cable subscriptions they sold and we knew where we were winning and how to make mid-course Corrections and so that was the thing that really turned me on was the results. I love the awards I love the great creative and it takes both the interesting thing in in the history of T3 is in 1992 we started working with a little company in Austin called Dell and Dell was small and we were small Uh, but we started doing a lot of direct mail from them we could measure the results And Dell really had this mantra always that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So boy, that fit right in with our philosophy. We loved them. And by 1994, Michael pronounced that, hey, we're going to start selling on the internet because it perfectly fits our direct model. And I was in a room with him when he said that. I ran back to the office and I said, hello, boys and girls, if we are going to keep up and keep The Dell business, we're going to have to get this internet thing under control. we got to learn how to do it. So we learned with Dell, back and forth, hiring each other's people, trading people back and forth, finding people all over the country who built the very first successful online marketing campaigns in the country. And uh, it was amazing, uh, an amazing ride, 16 years with them. And we measured every little thing. And it was great to see the results roll in. I have so many stories about results, but that was really a turning point for this agency was that we became one of the first online marketers.
1: And was that atypical for agencies at the time to be so focused on results? I'd be curious to know what the market and what the climate was like then.
2: There were companies at the time that were very focused on results and they were almost research oriented, direct marketers, that sort of thing. But their work wasn't very good. It was kind of uninspired work. So my concept was to get the great results, but also, Really, do beautiful, creative, wonderful work that would delight people, excite people, create those emotional connections. So you had both kinds of companies. You know, you had a lot of creative agencies at the time that were all about the awards and all about your creative, and to hell with the results. So, but it wasn't for me. One of the reasons was I didn't think I could keep the account or the business if we weren't showing results. And so we we walk in every quarter and say, "Here's where we are." And so obviously, when the internet blew in and and we had those opportunities to show results. It was like manna from heaven to me because I went, oh, wow, we can really measure stuff now.
1: Selfishly, I have uh, one question. I'm hoping to get a piece of advice from you. So Dell recently sponsored one of our podcasts uh, that's coming out for Veterans Day. So it's called Find Your Mission. It's uh, focusing on a series of veteran entrepreneurs like myself and others. So any tips or advice on working with Dell?
2: Well, they still are like they always were and they love results. And so I think, you know, anything that you can do to show, you know, your reach and all that stuff, that'd be really cool and the people you're affecting. And, you know, Michael and Susan have been just such great philanthropists. I think that they believe in that and and anything that you can show that really is giving back, I think that's something that they value.
1: Thanks, appreciate that. As you're building T3, we're around the year three mark. Uh, What was the next big inflection point And I'd be curious to know too, How's your cash flow at this point? Are you uh, raising debt? Are you looking to investors or is the business profitable?
2: Well, you won't believe this, but I have never borrowed one thin dime to run this business over 30 years. It's been bootstrapped the whole way. And that probably goes back to my childhood. And you know, my dad was a veteran, uh, had a really, really, really rough career in World War II, made it through, but it was quite a a soldier and and a great man. But he died uh, when I was 13. And so from that moment on, I really I went to work I had my first job at 13 and I was constantly making sure I had enough money you know to get through anything I needed to do and I think that philosophy followed me into the business world and when I you know own my own company I thought I don't want to borrow anybody's money and here's another reason why I only work for my clients and they tell me what to do and they certainly are the boss but uh, there's no outside you know people goading me and trying to make me do something that I didn't want to do. And I've I've put together programs and stuff here at T3 that I don't think I would have been allowed to do uh, had someone been in the picture.
1: So I'm calling you from uh, Silicon Valley today. And obviously, this is the mecca of certain types of, just call it entitlement or people that are always looking for other people's money in order to fund their ideas. I feel like the mindset of using your own money or using profits or using revenues to fund what you want to create has gone out of style a bit. Do you feel like that's happening in Texas and Austin as well? Or is it not that big of an issue?
2: First of all, there are certain types of business that are capital intensive and you have to have some outside money. I mean, I'm investing in companies right now that I believe in, and they produce stuff and things and durables and consumables and all that. A service business is different, and you can control the size. You know, when you own it, when you have it, you can control how big we are any year. I can dial it back. I can dial it up. I can grow it. I can do this. And so, really, your overhead is your people. You certainly have other overhead. You know, there's technology, there's real estate, there's all that. I can't control if I'm producing, you know, Coca-Cola, how many cans I need out the door, and it's going to take money. And so, it's different. And I. I understand. I understand. But yes, Austin has had a lot of VC money in here for a long time. A lot of companies here really go that direction, but they're built in a different way. T3 was never built to sell. A lot of the companies that I know and some many of the entrepreneurs that I know and respect here in Austin that are friends of mine have literally started companies with the intention to sell. And they start that way and that's what they do. My son is even a person. My youngest son even did that here and had a successful run with the business, but it was built to sell.
1: You're focused continually on investing in people and figuring out how do I get more money to hire these rock stars and give them, you know, a new opportunity, something they're excited about. So that's, uh, I really like that philosophy because, you know, you can always go into more complicated products later on when you have that solid foundation of profits of revenue and i think that that gets left out of the business conversation.
2: Well, the other thing too, you know, that we invest in is is technology and we always have because we're always looking at what's next. You know, T3 has been known to be the type of company that's looking around the corner all the time and prototyping things rapidly that we can go show clients that end up becoming part of their marketing strategies. Stuff they didn't ask for. In fact, i have a whole innovation team here that doesn't have to work on any piece of business, but they also are wicked smart and they come up with really cool things that then we take to market and it becomes the next big strategy for a client or the next big technique that they will use to market. So it's, it pays off, but you know, it's a bit like 3M did, you remember how they've always been known for, you know, you have your people who are out there ideating and coming up with stuff all the time, you know, and that was their philosophy for years. So it's something that we've always believed in that you've got to be thinking ahead. And when people are working every day on a piece of business, they're really locked in on that. And they sometimes don't have the time or the opportunity to dream dreams, you know, and so. it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to watch what comes out of here.
1: Is there any story you could share uh, as an example, it could be a customer success story of something that came from your innovation team that you were able to put into the market?
2: We patented and had uh, the first geo-fencing targeting tool. So avant-garde at the time, it was years ago, that a lot of clients were afraid of it because they thought it was creepy. But we learned from that. So we built ended up building the very first contextual app and it's for 7-Eleven. And it was based on all the knowledge that we have in your phone and a lot of other things we know about you the app allows us to know where the person is of course know what time of day it is know what the temperature is and this is a few years ago it doesn't sound that sexy now but when we first did this it was like wow you know that way 7-eleven could say Come in for a, a free cup of coffee. If you you know, if you've been buying coffee here every morning and it's cold, it's thirty-two degrees, come in on us today. Or we know that you may it may be time for you to get some gas and the nearest seven eleven gas station is in two blocks. Stuff like that. That and people signed up for this. It was an app they wanted because it was helpful. And we have a concept here in a whole study that we do called the useful brand. And we think brands have to be useful. We have to say, you have to do and then say. Another thing we did was we worked with IBM Watson and created through artificial intelligence, the next iteration of the easy button. So the easy button was just kind of a joke, but we decided a few months ago that we could take the intelligence that Watson uses, turn it into an easy button that actually can be used in an office setting where if you go into the storage closet and get out three pads of sticky notes and five pens. You just push the easy button, it'll go into the ordering system. The next time the orders come, it replaces your order. You tell what it is. It's kind of a bit of a Alexa kind of concept, but it's it's something that we were real excited to work on, and, and IBM was really excited to partner with us on it. So, but those are the kind of things that come out, and I'll, I'll never forget when my son was trying to take the prototype to the airport, the TSA almost arrested him because it looked like a bomb or something. And one last example, which is really cool, and this hadn't even gone to market yet, so I'm gonna give you a little heads up, a little secret here. We did an event at South by Southwest, and we had the Head and the Heart band play. They were on stage, so we don't hire just advertising people. I've got a biochemical and a biomedical engineer that work here and uh, they partner with the University of Texas on concepting and things and so they created a monitor that went on people's hearts and their heads and it was measuring their sentiment in real time about the band and so when that happened the light show was being motorized or being done by their emotions. That's and awesome. so what next can we do with that? You know, if I can measure that, where else could we do that in a client situation, which could be just amazingly cool and could, who knows, really help people to understand their, their affinity to a brand.
1: That's really, really cool. I think the military needs that. I'm just saying, especially for, uh, for training. What was the next uh, moment for you in the business where... Things hit a rough patch or were there any dark nights of the soul after, you know, year three?
2: Yeah, you go through growing pains when you grow a business. And yeah, I say when you get to year three, it's it's you've made it to a certain place. By the year five, maybe getting into it really as a business starts to grow a bit and mature some, you, your systems break a lot of times. It's like, you know what used to work. I'm going way back, I'm dating myself, but you know, your phone system didn't work anymore. The CPA firm that you hired, or the CPA, the person you hired, you've outgrown that and have bigger needs and you gotta go hire a different firm. So all those things along the way break and you have to be willing to make some, like I said, some pretty quick mid-course corrections to get things right. There is the real life tragedies of a recession. There's the real life pain and suffering when a client gets a new uh, chief marketing officer and fires you overnight for no reason at all and you lose a lot of money. I had that happen to me actually. I was about to go on stage at Wharton to give a speech to the business school and I got an emergency phone call and it was one of my clients who said, I just got fired and you're about to get fired. And it was a big client and it was very hard. And I walked out on the stage, gave the speech, flew back to Austin and dealt with the situation.
1: There's a Harvard Business Review study that came out recently that showed that the average tenure of CMOs is falling. And it might even be falling pretty rapidly. I think it's hovering around 18 months now. It's really hard to build long-term partnerships and relationships when you're either working with a CMO or SVP of marketing and they're paranoid about losing their job. Or they're paranoid about a sales and marketing conflict that ends up getting them fired. What's your take on the situation? And do you have any advice for working with CMOs and SVPs?
2: Yeah, this has been building up for a while. And I think it became much more episodic when the internet moved in in a big way into these companies. So like I said, you can measure everything. And so the analytics Uh, that we're always excited about at T3 that go behind all these things are pretty obvious and pretty apparent. So if the CMO is not performing, it's no longer kind of a mystery. It's, well, look, we missed sales by 30% last month. You know, why? What were you doing? And so it's a tough job. I mean, you know, being a CMO is a tough job today. I'm telling you, because we have been so involved in the digital strategy, the digital execution, and a lot of our stuff works, you know, that we can transcend a lot of CMOs, you know, we're not, we're not the broken thing, right? You know, sometimes the new CMO comes in and we've lost business over it. I'm not going to tell you we haven't, but they'll come in and their big neck to grab is the giant branding agency or something. The little engine that could T3 is over there making stuff happen. You know, we're over there making toothpicks while the other ones are looking around at the trees.
1: How do you think about customer success and having your team be sure that the client understands the results you're producing? Because Sometimes you need to say things more than once for them to hit home or for them to percolate around the company so everyone knows the results. I'd be curious to know what's your approach to customer success?
2: We really, really drive home the results all the time. We're we're measuring constantly and um, so we can hopefully help them make some of those corrections and if we test something it's not working we just pull it out just like that. You got to fail fast, you know, and so uh, we help our clients really do that so that they don't go down three to six months in something and it's not working and then you got a big failure on your hands or a big sales loss. We talk about that all the time. We put it in a place and make it very easy and readable and graphically beautiful so they can go share it with everybody that they can talk to in their companies and figure out what to do so you don't sink a lot of money in a failing project.
1: Throughout building the business, did you ever have a board of directors or did you build an informal board or... Were you looping your own executives in to act like a board?
2: Uh, The board of directors has always been my husband and me. And we have a weekly meeting in our hot tub at the ranch (laughs) in Texas. And we always said that kept um, the group to two people.
1: (laughs) I love it. It's a
2: privately privately held and closely held corporation. Yeah. Lee, actually, my husband, uh, did not start the company with me. He was very supportive. And then when we picked up the Dell business in 1992, I asked him to come and work with me for a few years just to get that thing under control. Because Dell was just like, on go, go, juice. And, and we were wild and growing and all this stuff. And so he came in and said, okay, I'll get this under control. <laughs> and he liked the Dell people. They liked him and he loved technology. And so years into it, he became the chief operating officer and only retired a few years ago. So uh, he's been my partner in, in all this for pretty much since the beginning.
1: I like that. So that's uh, that's similar to us as well. So uh, I recently convinced my wife three and a half months ago to leave her job. Uh, she was doing augmented reality strategy for Google And uh, over the course of a year, I was able to convince her to become our COO. Couldn't do it without her. And it's so nice working with someone that you have a shared history with where you're going to be able to talk about things outside of work. You're going to be able to solve problems whenever they come up. That type of flexibility, I feel like when I talk to my friends who do have a board or who have raised huge sums of money from investors, they seem to be pretty stressed out. Whereas if I'm going into a meeting with Stephanie, my wife, I'm not stressed out. I know... (laughs) what she's going to say roughly, a board can sabotage many businesses in some senses. Have you ever seen any instances where a board or investors are very, very helpful for a business? I'd be curious to know what that looks like for you.
2: I think the capital factory has been a really good thing in Austin for a lot of entrepreneurs. What are you going to do if you want to go ask for money and how are you going to do it? And they, they really put them through the rigor. On the other hand, you know, I've also seen, like you said, sometimes the outsiders come in and their, their one motivation is to run you up and sell you so they make their money. And sometimes those decisions aren't the best. And I've seen some companies just run in the ground like that. So you got to really watch what works for you.
1: Okay. Is there a time where you had to uh, face up to and own a weakness or uh, something you noticed that was suboptimal? Uh, Could you tell us a story about that and how you got past it?
2: I am a very, very big student. I decided to study Myers-Briggs. And so I'm a student of it. I understand it. To me, it's inextricably linked to every decision almost I've made in my career. I didn't know who I was when I first started in the advertising business. And I got fired from my first job because I was in an environment that was an introverted environment. And I I'm an extrovert and I didn't understand that about myself and I didn't understand that about the organization I went to work for. I'm a people person. I love to talk strategy with people. I enjoy getting out there, speaking, meeting with clients, doing the new business thing, that was always my deal. But when it came down to the details of the operations of this company, I would have been horrible. I could have done it. I did it for a little while because you can do anything for a while. At the long haul, if you're not hitting your stride where you're really hitting your strengths and what you do well, then you'll fail. So I've always put people around me that short up my weaknesses. Every time there's a senior management meeting, I think about, okay, that person's doing this for me, this one, this one, this one. And anybody who works closely with me, I see them in that capacity. And hopefully I bring to them something that you know improves their career because I'm providing something that they don't do well. And so I just think about it all the time. I mean, that's how I operate.
1: Let's talk for a moment about your book, Cowgirl Power. So that was your first book. Yes. Congratulations. And what was the genesis like of that book? And uh, why did you want to write it?
2: I thought, well, maybe someday I should write a book. You put it on the back burner and it's a lot of work and you want to deal with it because I was so busy running the business. And I got to a point though that I thought, you know, I need to share this story. And people were encouraging me because I was out doing a lot of speaking events on leadership, on just my advice to the world about how to run a business and to entrepreneurs and also to women's groups. I was being asked to speak at a lot of these things and people said, why don't you write a book about this stuff? And so I said, well, maybe I will. So I did. At the time I was writing in the entrepreneur section for Forbes, I was a contributor. So I decided that, wow, you know, some of these articles are getting interesting because I started veering into my old Texas ranch wisdom and how that informed me about business decisions. And one of my just for an example, one of my really successful articles in Forbes was The Rattlesnake Rules for Effective Risk Management. And so, you know, I really did the analogy of the how you deal with a rattlesnake and how you deal with risk in real life and in business. I did a proposal, I found an agent in New York, she liked the idea. We sold the book to Hachette. And one of the largest publishers in the world, if not the largest. And then I had to go write the book. Still want to put some of this ranch stuff in here because I'm an old ranch girl. I'm a cowgirl. I grew up riding horses when I was a little kid and working cattle and all that. And so, uh, and I've always loved cowgirls. So I went to the Cowgirl Museum in Fort Worth, Texas, and it's a beautiful museum. It's not hay bales and barn. It's beautiful, fabulous, modern museum. And I got to know some of these women that went before us, and uh, they performed in the late 1800s and up into the 1930s and competed against men and competitions worldwide, rodeos, Wild West shows, all that stuff. And they were amazing women. I mean, unbelievably talented, competitive, good spirited. They just exemplified so many traits that I wanted to put in the book. So each chapter starts off with one of the women. One of them is Annie Oakley. Everybody knows who she is. And she was undoubtedly the best sharpshooter in the world uh, in her day. And was actually the first female superstar from the United States, international and uh, quite the woman. And so, and she was about uh, not even five feet tall. <laughs> so I put these little vignettes in there just to give people a glimpse into the grit and determination that people had that long ago, women in a man's world completely. So I put them in there and there's something in there for men and women it is not a women's empowerment, but, but you know, when you write a book, If anyone wants to, you have to have a target audience, and you have to be very specific about your goals, who you're going to reach, and what your sales are going to be. I've targeted women aged 20 to 35. And now that I've been out in the world traveling and talking about it and selling books and signing books and all that, I found the book had a huge overlap. Kids have come up to me and said, I really am glad I read your book because it's going to change what I do in college. I've had women 65 years old who said, I retired from my company, and now I need a new kickstart in life and I need to get regenerated. And this book is everything, I keep it by my bedside. And then people in the advertising industry, it's the story of the advertising business too. So it's really had a much broader appeal and um, I'm working on another concept for another book, it might take a different form. Uh, I'm not sure. And then what I can tell you is that I've been asked by uh, a lot of people who want to back it up to do a children's version of Cowgirl Power and have it illustrated and, you know, break it down into a child's book. And so that's probably on the horizon. I need to get that done.
1: What was your favorite chapter to write of Cowgirl Power?
2: The Dell story and exactly what happened to us after 16 years and how they walked in one day and said, you have to sell your company to WPP or you're out. And it's a wild story of what happened, I mean, wild. And so it wasn't fun to write that, Mm -hmm. but Dell was so much the history of T3 and what made us who we were as marketers on the internet because they were a paying client who was out there testing everything in the internet. And here we were, a little agency in Austin that took off with it. But then it was our demise in one way too, and it could have killed the company. It was a huge amount of money. I lost $70 million in one day. Wow. And it almost killed me. The worst day in the business history. So I didn't love writing the chapter, but I did. It was absolute glory and demise. In one chapter of how we built ourselves up, how we did all this stuff, learned so much, and then one day how life comes at you and just tears you apart. And it's what you're made of. And it was how we reacted to that and what we did. And we made money that year, believe it or not. Like I wow. told you, I made a profit every year. It was a miracle. Writing that chapter is I wanted people to say, oh, gay Gaddis hasn't always lived a charmed life kind of a tough childhood in some ways. And I wrote about that and good childhood, but tough. And I want people to relate, you know, that, yeah, things don't always come perfect to us, you know, yeah. and when the tough things get thrown at you, what are you going to do? So that was my favorite one.
1: Okay. So thank you so much for being generous with your time. This has been a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed it. And I would love for you to maybe leave our listeners with a final thought or maybe just a motivational message.
2: My husband and I have this ranch near Burnett, Texas, and we're ranchers and raised Texas longhorns and all that so through the years we've been out there for 25 plus years after we sold our other places in texas and so we try to support the local economy and there was a many years ago there was a a chinese restaurant that opened in marble falls texas so we went there and ordered our food and asked if we could order a bottle of wine. And so the, the young guy who was waiting on us, who didn't have much experience at being a waiter, showed us the list of what they had and we picked out something and then he comes out with great ceremony with the towel over one arm, the you know the corkscrew and the wine. And my husband and I taste the wine almost simultaneously and almost spit it out on the table. Take it back, and the poor guy looked at us and he said, take it back? He said, I can't take it back. I already opened it. <laughs> so customer service is probably the most important thing you can ever think about in your career. Whoever your customers are, you better take care of them. And you know, we, we didn't go back there, let's just say that, sure. even though we wanted to support the small town. And people get a bad taste in their mouth over something And they'll leave you. And it's almost impossible to get them back. You know, if you turn off a client, if you turn off a customer anywhere in that experience, they'll leave you now. Mm. And so always think about that customer experience from end to end. What was it like? Really kind of always keep in mind, what is my customer's experience? If you focus there, a lot of good things will follow because that's what it's all about.
1: That's a great place to end it. Thanks so much. This has been a blast.
2: Thanks for all you do.